So it's interesting that James <clears throat> texted me this morning and then I showed up and you know I asked him to share that word during pre-service prayer. And it's interesting that he describes that man's thoughts as incomplete. Because one of the first things that we're going to hit in today's sermon is what I think is an incomplete idea that the church has embraced for far too long. And so maybe God is speaking to us, through us, about these realities of incomplete truth claims. Incomplete answers. As if they're supposed to be sufficient or go unchallenged. And around here, you know that's not our ethos. We say challenge everything. Because challenges demand answers. We say question everything. Don't take my word for it. Be like a Berean. Question what Matt Oberlander says. Josh Maxwell is very good at this. He goes home, he opens up his Bible, and then he calls me or he texts me on Monday morning and he's like, bro, you said this. And I heard it. But I've done some reading and I've done some studying and I think I'm looking at it from this perspective. And I'm like, that's cool. Enlighten me. Help me to zoom out. Not zoom in and get pigeonholed. Help me to get a better perspective, a wider perspective on God's wisdom. And that's what we're after here. We're after understanding the Word of God in line with the will of God under the headship of the Spirit of God. If you remove any one of those, you're going to be worse for the wear. You can't know the will of God apart from His special revelation. It's how He has chose to communicate. We can't understand His special revelation apart from the Spirit of God. He's our teacher, John says. So it's this collective effort on God's behalf in how He has sovereignly decided to communicate to us and then to communicate to us and through us to one another. This is why we cannot avoid the fellowship of the saints. There's nothing more important than a body of believers who are Spirit-filled coming together and speaking to one another. We don't always get it right. And when we get it wrong, like James said, we want to be corrected. Because love is not a feeling and it's not an emotion. It's an action that we take because we've made a decision. I love this person. Therefore, because I love them, no matter how I feel, I'm going to pursue what's best for them at great cost to myself. If you're looking for the chief example of that expression and definition, Study the life of Christ. That is agape. That is the greatest kind of love. The love that we actually cannot like, embody perfectly, but we can pursue, and we can pursue it when our eyes are on Christ. Now we're in a, a sermon series on 1 Peter. And 1 Peter is writing to the church in the diaspora. Five Roman provinces. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are the Roman provinces that are the recipients of his letter. Which means that as he's probably dictating, and as Silvanus is probably writing, and as, uh, as Timothy is, is probably in the room, like making sure that uh, Silas is getting, right, getting it right and checking what Peter is saying, because it's a collective effort, bringing the letter into its existence. As this is going on, they're having other people copy the letter and copy the letter and copy the letter because it has to go to five different provinces and each province has more than one home church. So think about how long it took to produce the letter of 1 Peter. 
It wasn't like Peter just sat down one evening and decided he was going to write a letter and it just came into being. It was a very intentional process. And the intention of Peter was to encourage a church that was suffering. A church that was being persecuted. Now this wasn't governmental persecution. This wasn't state-sanctioned persecution. This was local persecution. Peer persecution. From class to class and caste to caste in a horizontal capacity. And history had not uh, traversed enough so that the government was killing Christians for simply putting their faith in Jesus. And even when Nero was doing that, these five Roman provinces were largely unaffected. Yes, the culture that Rome drove had an effect, but it wasn't as strong in these five Roman provinces as it was at home where Nero was ruling. And so we have to keep all this in mind as we're studying the letter. We have to have our minds informed by what was going on historically and culturally so that we can understand what it is that Peter's saying and what it is that his audience is understanding. Once we know those things, then we do what's called crossing the principalizing bridge from their neighborhood to our neighborhood, and we draw an application. But if we're off on what Peter intends to say, or if we're off in what the audience understands, we're going to be off in our application. It's very important to us around here. We talk about this a lot because my goal is that everyone in the room should be able to explain these things. These steps that have been dubbed the science of hermeneutics. How we study the text. How we talk about the text. How we interpret the text. All of these things are important. All of these things are part of the DNA here at AC Squared. So with that being said, you know, we had a week off. We had two weeks prior to our week off where we didn't address the letter of 1 Peter. I want to just get... get Prime the pump of our minds. Get us thinking again on what it is that we've talked about in the past. So let's pray, and then we'll dig in this morning to our study. Father, we, wanna, we just want to come humbly before You, Lord, and we want to admit that we are fallen, sinful creatures. Lord, we need to repent of our inability to take aim and hit the intended goal. So Father, we ask that uh, as we lay our hearts bare before You today, that Your Word would wash us clean. That Your Spirit would transform us as the Gospel is being proclaimed. God, You are alive and You are seated on the throne and You sent Your Spirit into the world to convict it of sin. So today, Lord, our request is that You would convict us of our sin. That You would begin to transform us to an even greater degree so that we can image You well in our lives here on this earth, in our relationships with our families, even with those, God, who are at odds with us. Father, You loved us so much that You laid Your life down for us while we were at enmity with You. Help us to see the world that is lost through that lens, that we would care enough to lay our lives down for their sake, at great cost to us, Lord, help us to exercise authentic love the way that you displayed and exemplified it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so today our portion of the 
text comes from 1 Peter chapter 3. We were going to do verse 13 through 17, but I got super flustered this week, so I cut verse 17 off this morning, and we're going to study verse 13 through 16. Today is going to be one of those uh, services that uh, is going to be different than how most churches would do it, because depending on how much time we have left, I might end up calling on some people who have no idea that I'm going to call on them to participate in helping me exegete the text in a very practical way. Because here at AC Squared, this pulpit is not just for the voice of Matthew Oberlander. It's for the voice of the collective body. Every spirit-filled believer. So let's read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13-16. through 16. It's coming from the ESV translation. Peter begins in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Let's pause here. Every time we see this term you, we need to be reminded that Peter is speaking plurally. He does not have the individual in mind. Remember, he's writing this letter to five Roman provinces with multiplicity of churches in each province. So when we see the term you, he's speaking in a plural sense. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It's interesting that the Apostle Peter is the author of this letter. And we're going to get into that. I just want you to consider how beautiful it is that God used a man like Peter to write this letter. Now Peter opens up verse 13 with what's called a rhetorical question. Who will do you harm? Now normally I'm not a fan of rhetorical questions. Chances are I'm not a fan because 70% of the time or more often than that, the one who's presenting the rhetorical question to me, my wife, does it with a sarcastic tone. That's why I'm not a fan of rhetorical questions. All the husbands are going, I know exactly what you're talking about, Matt. And all the wives are like, you're worse than I am. The answer is yes. So Matt's not a fan of rhetorical questions. However, Dr. Lindsay Frazier reminded me that rhetorical questions can be a helpful tool. And here at AC Squared, we're all about collecting up helpful tools, especially putting them into practice when it helps us study the text. Now, Dr. Frazier writes that rhetorical questions are non-literal questions, which have been designed to emphasize an idea and encourage discussion or thought rather than arriving at a simple answer. Rhetorical questions are a helpful tool. So with that in mind, one might argue that the function and purpose of verse 13 is intended to cause internal reflection. 
Verse 13 is created. It's been written. It's been sustained throughout history so that it can cause us to think. Peter is by proxy inviting his audience both then and now to engage in the act of critical thinking as he pens this portion of the letter. Critical thinking is something that we need to discipline ourselves to do and to do well. It does not come naturally to us. It takes discipline. How beautiful that Peter the Apostle knew a sanctified mind and a sanctified heart took time, experience, and discipline. (laughs) Did we say that it's interesting that he wrote this letter? (laughs) Can you guys read this next slide for me, please? Now, we've already identified the function and purpose. I've read it. Collectively, you just read it. So it's time to think out loud. It's time to discuss the potential answers to Peter's rhetorical question. Now, some scholars believe that the obvious answer is no one. (laughs) Who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good. Well, only God is good. So if you're zealous for ultimately, no one can harm you. Did we lose power? Oh, okay. Sorry, I'm... Are we good? Check, check. Are we good? Is the audio going? Okay. All right. Sorry, I'm pumped. I'm zealous, baby! (laughs) If you want to know... If somebody loves God, watch how they talk about Him. Watch how they talk about His Word. And watch how they display it. When I say I'm zealous for God, I can mean it. And you guys can call me on the carpet week after week. Man, it looks like you're losing some of that passion. Looks like you're losing some of that zeal. Or sometimes you guys have had to tell me, yo, I need you to pull that back in because that looks a lot less like passion and more like anger. Hey, I'm just saying. Just saying. So the, the immediate or the most obvious answer, according to some scholars, is that there is no one who can harm you. Ultimately, because God has got you. Now, when we take an answer like this, we have to admit that we're very much in line with Peter in his way of thinking and writing. At least on a surface level, we are. Because Peter, in chapter 1, encourages them not to focus on the past and while they live in the present, to keep their focus on their future hope. The eschatological reward. The inheritance that will not fade. A resurrected body that is no different than the body that Christ lives in right now because He is the firstborn of what will be many brothers. Now, this answer... No one is grounded in a future hope because we know and believe that God will reward the faithful and shame the rebellious. Some argue, as we've been saying over the last 60 seconds, that no harm can come to the saints who have been made alive in Christ Jesus. Augustine you ever heard his name? Church Father Augustine? 
He writes, if you love the good, you will suffer no loss. Because whatever you may be deprived of in this world, you will never lose God who is the true good. Now I can get on board with this line of thinking. I can. I can stand behind it because I can articulate why we can think like this when we understand the eschatological hope that we have in Christ. But what happens when you're dealing with a new Christian who doesn't understand that or someone who's lost? That's why we might call this answer incomplete. Because it speaks very well to the Christian and only to the Christian. So I can get on board with this line of thinking. We're not telling anyone that they should jettison this way of thinking. But we need to be willing to admit that answers like this are lacking. They leave gaps. They don't close loops. And that can be problematic. We should have compassion towards those who are seeking God. Who are attempting to draw near to Him. We should walk side by side with them as Philip did with the Ethiopian eunuch to the degree that he got on board in the chariot just so he could explain the scroll of Isaiah. Answers that we offer are sometimes incomplete. We just have to take a bite of humble pie and say, we don't know it all. Only God is omniscient. And it's okay if I don't have the answer or even the complete answer. That's okay. Because tomorrow, God willing, as I study the text, I'll develop an even more in-depth answer. But right now, this is what I know and this is what I believe. Well, what do we believe? That no harm, no harm can truly come to you? No harm can truly come to me? No harm can truly come to us? Can we sit here in this room with intellectual honesty and say, I actually embrace that perspective? No! You cannot! You can't look to the person on your right and look to the person on your left and say, I can't suffer any harm! It doesn't work like that in the real world. That's not how the human experience functions. And we're all human. Even those of us who have been regenerate. Now New Testament scholar Dennis Edwards observes that the entirety of Peter's letter offers evidence that suffering is more than a possibility. It's a reality. And as the bride of Christ, it's a reality that we need to be prepared for. So he goes on to write that the idea seems strained to him to make the harm of verse 13 different from the suffer or the suffering of verse 14 and 17. So let's do some horizontal reading and let's try to see if we can parse this out. Who is there to harm you? Verse 13. The following verse, verse 14. But even if you should suffer, verse 17, which we'll tackle next week, for it is better to suffer for doing good. So this begs the question, if no one can harm me, what's Peter talking about? Suffer what? (laughs) 
And now you have to answer it. But no one can harm me. Well, then what does Peter mean by suffering? Ah, we're starting to expose some blind spots in the traditional approach and answer to the question. It's not that the answer is wrong. It's that it's incomplete. It sounds good. But does it leave me satisfied? That's the question. So what are we to do, church? What are we to do? Well, maybe this would be the perfect time to remind ourselves that rhetorical questions are non-literal questions. Hmm. New Testament scholar Peter Davids argues that the Apostle Peter is speaking proverbially in verse 13. He believes that Peter is offering a word of wisdom no different than the Proverbs. And for those of us who study the Bible, we know that we're not required to bring a literal lens to the wisdom literature. We're required to pursue what it is that the author is communicating, what he is intending to say, not what we think he's saying. Peter's offering a word of wisdom. What if we read verse 13 with this in mind? If we, the saints in Christ Jesus, conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, it is likely that we will not excite the enmity and the anger of others. I said likely. I didn't make a promise or a guarantee. I said it's likely. Hmm. Jeremiah chapter 29. You ever read the whole chapter and not just 11? It's a serious question, church. Do you know that the prophet Jeremiah writing from the homeland to those who are in captivity tells them, you're going to need to be patient. You're going to need to settle down. You're going to need to make homes and get married. You're going to need to pray for the government there. You're going to need to engage is what he's saying, not disengage. You're going to need to responsibly occupy your role in society without compromising your position in Christ. That's what you need to do, Israel, while you're in Babylon. Does Paul say, live a quiet and peaceable life? Have you ever read 1 Thessalonians? I have. Have you read Acts? Do you know that Paul was driven out of Thessalonica within weeks and Jason, the man whose house he was staying in, was imprisoned and Paul not returning to his home was the bail bond? So that if Paul came back to Jason's house, Jason was going back to jail. The guarantee that Paul would not go back to Thessalonica was his bail bond. Hmm. So live quiet and peaceable lives. If you do that, maybe it's likely that we will not excite the enmity and the anger of others. It's a possibility that we will, but maybe it's not likely. I think there's some wisdom in that. Maybe the Apostle Peter is just offering a word of wisdom over and above a truism. Is it possible? We have a whole book of wisdom sayings. We don't have a whole book of truisms. So maybe Peter's offering wisdom. Now if we pause to read verse 13 in the greater context of the letter, then I believe we can come up with a better answer than no one can harm me. I think we can do it. You guys want to try? Okay. 
Open your Bibles. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. If you guys didn't hear what Ryan just said, he said, stop focusing on a horizontal lens and start putting your eyes on Christ. Get a vertical lens. Get a divine perspective from the top down, not from left to right. Exactly. Refocus, recalibrate. When I was in the army, we would say reconfirm our zero so that when we pull the trigger, we hit the intended target. That's what we would say. Now we're going to read verse 13 in the greater context of the letter, which means I'm going to read chapter 3, verse 10 through 13 to you. Now in Peter's letter, in this section, he's quoting the psalmist, Psalm 34. This was part of our last study in the letter. So Peter's quoting the Hebrew Scriptures because they're authoritative for him and his people. And he's including them as a form of instruction in his letter to the Gentiles who have been grafted in, Paul would say. Listen to this. For whoever desires to love life and see good old days. Church, do you desire to love life and see good old days come whatever may? Or do you only desire to live life and see good old days when things are going good? Are we like Elisha and Jonah? Just kill me now, Lord! Or do we desire to see good old days and live a long life? Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Peter would say, when you're being reviled, don't revile back. When you're being threatened, keep silent. Church, can we keep our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit when we're under pressure? That's a good answer. Not naturally. Which is why the next line says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Because naturally our inclination is to do that which is not right in God's eyes. Which means we need to turn from that. Repentance, James. Turning from it, turning to God. Do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Who are the righteous? The righteous are the ones who live according to what the psalmist just described. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Did we catch it? As we read verse 13 in its greater context, it seems to me that Peter's logic traces this line of thinking. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, looks favorably upon the righteous but rejects the wicked. Who then is the one who will harm you when you are doing what is good? Our answer to this rhetorical question. I believe our answer to this question should sound something like, whoever may choose to harm us, we can know with certainty that it is not the Lord our God. Because His eyes are on the righteous. He is my sanctuary. He is my tower. He is my source of strength. He is the one who is gracious and loving and compassionate and patient and willing that none should perish. 
This is the God of the Bible. So when the question is posed, who is there to harm you, we can say, certainly not the Lord our God. However, an answer like that leaves room for the antagonist, which is both seen and unseen, i.e. unregenerate humanity, as well as the rebellious Elohim. Brent would say, you can throw yourself in there as a third category. Because sometimes self-harm is a problem. But I'm offering two viable solutions outside of the Lord our God. Whom can actually bring harm against us? If you're looking for an intertextual example of that, go home and read the book of Job this week. Because you will see in technicolor that the rebellious Elohim can attack humanity, bringing harm, causing suffering. And you can see that Job's friends give bad advice that's rooted in harmful theology. And that's just as harmful. So the answer should not be, no one can harm me. The answer should be, certainly not the Lord our God, but certainly unregenerate humanity, and certainly those who live in the unseen realm who are at odds with God and at odds with God's people. And if you want to throw your third category in there, say, sometimes myself, if you struggle with self-harm, and press into the body and let us know that you struggle with that, so we're ready to minister to you when you are struggling. If we choose to interpret the text this way, then we can avoid the pitfall of minimizing the reality of suffering as if it were a virtue. You ever come to church just broken? You ever walk through the doors just wanting to scream? (laughs) And somebody just proof texts you into the corner like it's all going to be okay. Well, Paul said, yeah, he said, shut up and grieve with me when I'm grieving. (laughs) And when you open your mouth and speak before I'm even done, you prove to me that you're not listening. You're just waiting for your chance to talk, which shows you how important this me laying my heart there actually is to you. You don't care about me. And this is why people are leaving the church in droves. Because we give incomplete answers and we have bad attitudes when it comes to suffering. We need to stop minimizing the reality of suffering as if it were a virtue. This is a renewed teaching this morning. It's not my teaching, it's Peter David's teaching. It's a renewed teaching which displays how one must conduct themselves in the midst of their suffering. And if you want a roadmap to how you're supposed to conduct yourself when you're suffering, read 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 10 through 12. Turn to Psalm 34. If that's not good enough with you, read the last few verses in chapter 2 and look at the example of the one who laid his life down for us, whose footsteps we are called to follow in. Start there. Now we've taken the time to think critically about the rhetorical question posed in verse 13. And we've done our best. That's the best I can give you this morning to work out a well-rounded answer that doesn't leave gaps. 
So let's see what it is that the author has to say next. Can you guys read this next slide for me? This one's a tough one for Matt. This one's a tough one for me. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's safe to say that even in today's postmodern Western first world culture, a lot of people have at least heard the Beatitudes. That's a safe thing to say. Now, is it just me, or is the Apostle Peter paraphrasing the teachings of the Master in verse 14a? Before we answer, let's take a moment to look at the text together. Is Brent up, and does he got the camera up here? You good? I need a microphone so that we can capture the reading on the audio. We're good? Oh, he says we're good. I need two readers. Somebody to read Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. Who wants to do that one? Okay, John, you'll do that. James, you're raising your hand behind him. You're going to read verse 11. So both of you are reading from Matthew chapter 5. When you find Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, go ahead, stand up and read it loud and proud so that everyone in the room can hear you. Look at verse 14a. Minus that little tagline on the end, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, it almost seems like Peter is paraphrasing this beatitude. Don't you think? So Peter is embracing the teaching of the Master and passing it on from Jew to Gentile with the expectation that they would understand. Which means that beatitudes weren't just something that existed in Jewish culture, they were prevalent in the Greco-Roman world as well. Let's read, James, you want to stand up loud and proud, read verse 11. Now, I don't know, I think verse 10 informs the backdrop of 14a, but we're reading verse 11 today because I brought it up in the beginning of today's sermon that it wasn't governmental top-down systematic punishment. It was local persecution. And Jesus is describing in verse 11 local persecution. When your peers revile you and speak falsely against you for my name's sake, you are blessed. How are we supposed to think about this phrase, blessed are those and blessed are you? How are we supposed to wrap our minds around the word blessed? especially when it's framed in the context of suffering harm. And we just learned that harm can actually be dealt out by both human beings and the rebellious Elohim. So how are we supposed to think about this phrase? Blessed are those and blessed are you in the context of suffering harm. In my preparation for this sermon, I found the work of Alan Stibbs to be very helpful in addressing this question. He writes that from a human perspective, this statement is absurd. And it is. Natural reaction. Brandon said it a few minutes ago. It's no one's natural reaction to say, I'm suffering. God is blessing me. That's not your default. Even being spirit-filled, which makes it possible, it's not your default. But it should be. 
It should be. You know, Jesus, Ryan, it's, it's beautiful that you brought this up, recalibrating our perspective. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mountain, Peter in this letter to these Gentile churches, he's not speaking. They're not speaking from a human perspective. They're speaking from a divine perspective. To be blessed, to be happy in this sense, does not mean to feel delighted. We're not in pursuit of a good feeling here, but rather to recognize that we are highly privileged, an object of special or divine favor. Now, in their book, Misreading Scripture Through Western Eyes, E. Randolph Richards and Brandon J. O'Brien define makarios as a state of contentment. Contentment when one knows one's place in the world and is satisfied with that. Listen to that. That is like the antithesis to the American worldview. Know your place in the world and be satisfied with that place. Makarios. Blessed. Do we believe that the master was blessed to fulfill his role on this earth? Do we believe that he was happily embracing his responsibilities? We know and we understand that our Lord willingly entered into space and time and took on flesh with the sole purpose to redeem humanity. He came on a mission. If the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe felt content with His role and His responsibilities, it begs the question, why do we struggle to find contentment in ours? Can't you just... Do a little bit more for me, Lord? Is my life really supposed to look like this? When's the last time you were nailed to a cross? When's the last time you were actually innocent? When were you put on a mock trial and paraded from one city to another before leaders who had only been established by the authority of the Father? Why do we struggle to find contentment in our own life? Knowing that the one who spoke it all into existence was perfectly content to take on flesh and die in our place. Dr. Keener reminds us that as believers, we must choose righteousness. There is no other option. We are to act justly and we are to do what is right. However, we must also be ready to suffer for it. Because it's only likely that we won't excite the anger of others. It's not guaranteed. When we are ready to suffer, that is, and when we do suffer because we will, because suffering is a universal human experience, we cannot lose sight of the reality that we are highly privileged to suffer harm for righteousness' sake. That's what it means to be blessed. Favored, fortunate, privileged. You need to get this. I feel good. Life's been good to me so far. Get it out. We have had our worldview framed 
by the enemy and we don't even know it. I don't think it's a stretch to claim that both Jesus and the Apostle Peter have graciously extended the invitation to share in their life's experience. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave. Who? His only Son. First Peter, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 5, verse 41. The apostles considered it joy. To what? To suffer harm for the sake of his name. Jesus Christ was crucified. Peter, at the end of his life, tradition teaches us, was crucified as well. But he found himself to be unworthy to die the same death as our Messiah. So he asked the Romans who were crucifying him to turn his cross upside down. The author of this letter and the one who sent his spirit into the world to inspire its writings, they're not inviting us in to participate in, in and along with anything that they themselves would not have willingly faced down. This is, this is and was the reality of their lives. We're blessed that it's not the reality of ours to the same degree. But persecution in our lives is real nonetheless, and so is the suffering that we experience. Don't minimize it. Exactly. We're not going to do that anymore. Now, can you guys read this next slide for me? I love this verse for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> I do. I'm just going to throw it out there, you know. I do. If suffering harm is a universal aspect of the human experience, then I want to know, and we should want to know, how are we supposed to respond in the midst of it? Peter offers a twofold perspective. He's really good at this. He does this all the time in his letter. If you read it slowly, you'll be like, he always offers the negative and then gives the positive. Fear not. Very familiar language in the Hebrew Scriptures. Fear not. Do not be troubled. That's the negative perspective. Don't do these two things if you put your faith in Jesus. The positive perspective, on the other hand, honor Christ as holy. Be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within or among us. The negative and the positive. Peter's educating us with healthy and sound doctrine. In verse 14b, Peter makes an allusion to the scroll of Isaiah. I had no idea that he was citing Isaiah until I studied to prepare this sermon. He does this to remind his readers that they are not the first of God's people to experience the threat of suffering harm. Read Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13 specifically if you want to know what it is that Peter's citing and look at it in the greater context of what Israel is experiencing. 
Just as the southern kingdom of Judah was instructed not to fear the hostile powers beyond their own borders, the early church was instructed to have no fear of the adversaries who existed within their own society. Peter is citing the text with the same word of encouragement. Fear not. Negatively, as believers, we are to refrain from fearing others. Positively, we are to set apart Christ as Lord in our hearts. That's an interesting statement. Set apart the Lord Christ as holy in your hearts. Now, we're not going to get into it today, but I would encourage you. This word honor can be translated consecrate or sanctify. The human being is being told to sanctify the Lord. Look at the Old Testament context of that this week. And study in Exodus and Leviticus that the people of God were called to consecrate themselves before coming to the Lord. It's a very interesting principle. Most of the time we talk about sanctification as if it can only happen under the Spirit. Just a very interesting principle. Sanctify Christ. How do I sanctify the Messiah in my heart? This is how we unpack it. Peter would choose to mention the heart because it was significant to the ancient Near Eastern culture and the first century belief system. The seat of emotions was in the vital organs. They didn't know about neurology then. I feel it in my splankna is the word. <laughs> in my, you know, in my lab, in my guts, you know? In my heart. What hurts when you're sad? Sometimes you get a headache when you're sad, but your heart aches. So this is why Peter is speaking culturally and contextually to his audience, because they understand it. And we lack an understanding because we think about the mind more than we think about the heart. More than we think about the seat of emotions. Now Thomas Schreiner notes that the heart is the origin of human behavior. From it, flows everything that people choose to do. Hmm. I think there's a proverb that says something like that. From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, and the mouth speaking isn't just literally about our language, but it's how our body follows our very words. Right? <laughs> Hence, we are to set apart Christ as Lord in the heart. Do we understand that this is not a private matter? <laughs> this is not a private matter. When Israel was going to sanctify themselves to engage the Lord at Sinai, it was a public matter. It was a communal matter. It wasn't for the individual. It was for the collective body. As believers, our private and public lives are inseparable. There are more cultures in the world that don't even have words that translate the English word privacy because it's a non-existent element in their world. Private and public lives are inseparable. How we choose to live in private will certainly display itself in public. It's only a matter of time. And this is something that's especially true during times when people are suffering harm. 
Saints, it would be in our best interest to work out our theology prior to when the you-know-what hits the fan. (laughs) You better know what you believe and why you believe it before you are pressed. It would not behoove you to work out your theology under pressure. This is why Peter tells us, be prepared. Be prepared, church. Are we ready to give an answer that is specifically tied to our confident hope, the future resurrection? Let me be clear. When Peter penned this letter, he did not have the professional or academic field of Christian apologetics in mind. He did not. (laughs) It didn't exist. Apologetics, like theology, is ever-evolving. It's the text that stays consistent. Notice that Peter instructs his loved ones to be prepared. We could say, prepared for what? (laughs) prepared to make a defense or to give an answer strange that peter doesn't tell us what that defense or that answer looks like he just says be ready when the time comes which means there's more than one way to skin that cat ladies and gentlemen there's not a right answer there's many right answers That's right. That's right. That's right. The questioner is going to receive a different answer based on the life experience of every individual who's posed with the question. Nailed it, Dasha. That's right. That's right. So I have the question looming constantly in my heart. In the seat of my emotion, AC squared, are we ready? Are we ready? Like legitimately, are we ready? As your pastor, it's my hope that we're not just ready with an answer, but that we're prepared to respond properly when given the opportunity. Can you guys read this next one for me? Now, I didn't go, and that's not a point of pride or anything. I was busy writing this sermon yesterday, but did anybody go to the Trump rally yesterday? One, two, three, four. Okay, we got four people that went. Okay. Anybody see the street preacher that was out there with a megaphone hollering at everybody? You know, you know what he lacked? You know what he lacked apart from gentleness and respect? Someone said good conscience, absolutely relationship. Relationship. 
For Peter, it's not just about knowing the answer. It's not. It's about communicating our answer the right way, at the right time. Have we already forgotten that Peter instructed us as followers of Christ to honor everyone? Honor everyone. When you wake up in the morning, just tell yourself, God wants me to honor everyone. Galatians chapter 6, Paul would say, when you have the opportunity, do good to everyone. Would Jesus tell me to honor my wife? Absolutely. Absolutely. That would be what James is talking about. We're giving a complete answer here. Were the people in the temple dishonoring the house of the Lord is the right question to answer. Not did Jesus honor the people who were in the temple when he cleared it out. Let's put it on the people who were there every single day. Were they honoring God? If the answer is no, then a form of correction needs to take place. What's up, Katya? Yep. That's why I believe James's message was from the Lord this morning because he stood here and he was like, I think I need to rebuke you all. (laughs) And that was an act of love. (laughs) And it's very, it's very good that Katya brings to the table that honor can look different. Honor looks different in certain scenarios in Russia than it does in America. Cultural context is going to set the precedent. So who else was born in a different country or raised crossing borders? Joshua was. Okay, so when you're wondering how important cultural context is to evangelism, you should probably pe- speak to people who have grown up in different cultures and not just assume that you can figure it out if you read a book. Yeah, it's crucial. Yeah, absolutely. that's very beautiful that's wisdom right there after three years of being in the perspectives environment which is a global mission ministry and education like seminar that I get to attend every year I learned it's not about what's right or wrong always it's not an either or it's what's good and what's best and what's better more often than it's what's evil or sinful or wicked go ahead Josh Different ways of approaching things, and this is uh, the encounter that we had 
everybody that starts from needing to know that there's no training here at all, mm -hmm. it's just a step in every step for themselves beyond yep. even needing to know that there's no Christ there. Yep. Right? Amen. Hundred percent. Brent said that the street preacher that was at the Trump rally said that he felt like he was convicted to be there. So the question that we would ask, not him, but that we would ask the Lord as we observe him in his ministry, because it's his ministry. So we don't get to micromanage his ministry, but we can ask, what's the fruit of his ministry? Is the fruit of his ministry good? Is it replicating? Is it multiplying? Because good trees produce good fruit. Therefore, we can make observations without making accusations. And we can ask questions which can lead us to the right answers. You know, we forget that Peter calls us to honor everyone. One scholar notes that it's not enough to simply offer an answer. It's how we give our answer. He goes beyond how we give our answer and says it's the life we live behind our answer. He says these two things combined are far more eloquent than the words that we can speak. Authenticity, there you go. That's def we're defining terminology today. Do we understand that our lifestyle, our testimony, it has to match the message we proclaim? Otherwise, we nullify the message. Another commentator writes that our Christian defense is more than a matter of appropriate intellectual content. Amen. It's more than a matter of what you know in your brain. Equally, it's a matter of the attitude you display while offering your defense. <laughs> is God honored in the way that you're conversating right now? That's a good question to ask. Would God be pleased with my engagement with this other individual right now? That's a great question. If God were standing here, because he sees it all, would he be proud of me as his son or daughter? It's a good question to ask when engaging somebody from across the aisle. As Christians, we must learn to supply a defense without being defensive. That's right. Notice that Peter says we are to do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. If I were to ask the question, what's more valuable, the words that we speak or our lifestyle, how would we respond? Are we aware that our words, everybody's already saying it, are we aware that our words mean nothing if our life story tells a different message? William Barclay writes, that the only compelling argument for the Christian life is a life lived beyond reproach. It's this type of life, according to 1 Peter, that will silence the slander, effectively disarming those who criticize us. Do we understand that it's not our job to take revenge? Vengeance is not ours, it's the Lord's. There is one just judge, James would say. So we, in this life, when we are suffering harm at the hands of those who are our enemies, while we view them as the mission field, we need to continually entrust ourselves into the hands of the one just judge, Peter would say, read the previous chapter. Just as Christ did. 
trace that lifestyle. He walked there. Oh, there's his foot print in the snow. His next one goes right here. I want to follow in the footsteps of my master. Do we want to follow in the footsteps of our master? Now, it's getting late. I said this is going to be one of those services that doesn't go like a normal service. So if you got to get up and go, do your thing. We respect that people have schedules. But I want to finish up with just a couple of ideas and then some testimonies. And nobody in the room has been preloaded to speak today. So <laughs> if I call on you, I hope that you're feeling bold today. Let's. <clears throat> yeah, go ahead. I don't know if you guys just heard what Ryan said, but it was beautiful. He basically gave a paraphrase <laughs> that's right out of Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And when you can discern what is good and acceptable and perfect, your language and your lifestyle will follow. If you can't discern what is good and perfect and acceptable, then you can't change what needs to be changed because you're unaware that it needs to be changed. Was it the what? A logical discernment? Well, uh, you know, you're asking if this comes from our own wisdom. We're conscious beings. We're sentient. We're alive. God has invited us into the process of building and establishing the kingdom with him. We're going to do certain things right, and we're going to do certain things wrong, and hopefully we learn from the things that we do wrong so that we don't repeat those things, right? So I would say, like, discernment is a learned discipline, like wisdom is applied knowledge, okay? So if we're asking, like, what type of discernment is it, I would not try to, like, segregate different types of discernment, but I would say, what have I learned based on my life experience, and how am I going to grow from that? And in that growth, I will then know better when this comes at me again, how to deal with it. That's how I would define like discernment and wisdom and things like that. Does that make sense? Okay. So as we're wrapping it up here, I just want to mention that Peter seems to place a high value on what it is that we do, which is why we here at AC Squared place a high value on what it is that we do. We say what we do in this life matters. What we do with our bodies matter. We believe that, which is why we teach that here. Now, I think it's interesting, I mentioned this at the beginning, that Peter was used by God to author this letter. Be prepared, Peter says. Be prepared to make a defense for any and all who will ask. This is how we know it's not top-down governmental. It's not just in the courts that, that Peter's saying, be ready to give a defense. And Jesus said, whether you stand before kings or men, I'll give you the words. So when we look at horizontally what Jesus taught and what Peter's writing, we're saying, this is to anyone at any time in any circumstance. What about the life of Peter could help him to author this, to know through life experience that this is important? Do we remember the night when they were in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane? 
And Jesus said, I am he that you seek. And they fell back. And then Peter's like, not my master. And he swings, you know, and they're like, oh, he cut off the ear. Well, I'm like, he was aiming for the head. He's just missed, you know. <laughs> like That's the grace of God in Peter's life right there. He wasn't going for the ear. <laughs> now, here's the deal. He follows Jesus at a distance. <laughs> he lets John go in. And what does Peter decide to do? Oh, it's kind of cold. <laughs> I'm going to warm myself by the fire. Is Peter prepared as he's standing by the fire to give a defense for the hope that lies within him? Not once, not twice, but three times. He swears to God and curses himself that he does not know this man. Less than 60 days later, <laughs> he's standing during Pentecost and he's preaching, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus right times of refreshment i think is what chapter four says i'm not like keen on the addresses all the time he's like turn from and turn to peter's life informed his ability to preach he knew what it meant to be unprepared and he knew the consequences of that we're reading about it thousands of years later that failure Anybody going to be reading about our failures thousands of years later? I hope not. <laughs> so he's, he's keenly aware of what it means. That's why I find it so interesting that God used him to pen this letter. Now I want to shift here into this idea that just as the home church in the first century was the training ground for the faithful saints... So our church is the training ground for the faithful saints. If we can't do it in here, we have no hope of doing it out there. So let's see. I'm not picking on anybody. We're a family and we just talk. We're not looking for a right answer. We're looking for your answer. Silas, come on up here. We've had some good conversations in the past about like your faith and how you read and interpret the text and my faith and how I read and interpret the text, right? Yes. So it's fair for me to qualify you as someone who puts their faith in Jesus? Yes. Did you make that decision? The decision following me? Sure. Yeah. It was my own decision. Amen. So you would say that you're striving to be loyal to God alone? It's, I have my struggles day to day, but yes, at the end of the day, I do want to serve God and I do want to glorify him. Yeah, yeah. So, if I had brought my Bali and my 10 mil today, and I brought it up here and I put it on and I racked around and I stuck my gun to your forehead, well, first of all, your mom would kill me. <laughs> yeah. I think it would be a bit of an awkward situation. It would be. A little bit. But if you were put in that situation, would you give me the same answers that you just gave me? If you Before I gave you that scenario. And asked me. Yeah. I'm kind of confused to what the point of this is. So, I, so before I gave you the hypothetical scenario of a Bali and a gun to your head, okay. I just asked you some simple questions. Yeah. Yeah. I and you, without hesitation, 
even talked about short failures and, and shortcomings, but yeah. your desire to follow Christ, right? Yeah. So under intense persecution, do you believe that you would be able to give those same answers the way that you gave them to me prior to the hypothetical? I think I would have a lot more of a shaky voice and I'd be a lot more hesitant, but I would say yes. That's awesome. But I think it would be a very basic answer. It would just be a yes rather than a full fleshed out thought out yeah. answer. See, this is humility right here on display. This is a spirit-filled teenager who is learning to walk out their faith in real time. And we're putting you in the position to be able to give an answer, to give your answer, without saying it has to be conformed to this or that language. And then I'm giving you a simple hypothetical scenario and asking you if you're going to give the same, and you're like, ah, probably be scared. I might piss myself. Depending on how scared I am, I, something else might happen, you know? And I, instead of giving you an articulated answer like I did, I'd probably just say yes, yes, and yes. That's honesty. He's training himself now. Before he got up here, notice, he was prepared to give the answer. Zero hesitation. Let's give him a round of applause. Yeah, thank you. It's not tough, and it's not rocket science. We're not looking for the apologetic uh, doctoral dissertation on the resurrection of Christ, the minimal or the maximal facts. We're not looking for, like, uh, the perspective that can disprove um, Hume, uh, Hume's argument on miracles. Like, all that's cool. All that's awesome, man. I love William Lane Craig. You know, I like Michael Jones even better and Cameron Bertuzzi. They're like my boys. I'm a classical, like, apologist. I'm not a presuppositional guy. I like evidentiary arguments, you know? And I got friends who are presuppositional, and they're like, Matt, I can't. I'm praying for you to change. And I'm like, well, keep praying. <laughs> you know, we're different, and God uses us in different ways. But here's the deal. Like, anybody should have their answer. For the hope that lies within. Let's see. Deb, I'll bring you up here. Come on, real quick. Are you getting ready to go? Oh, okay. We'll do one more after Deb, and then we got donuts and coffee, and everybody can hang out. But like I said, if you got to bounce, just bounce. This is the training ground. Can I bring up your mom? Yeah. Okay. Your mom just passed away. She was young. Yeah. I know that she was young because when you sent my mom the pictures from your mom's celebration of life, my mom was weeping and she was like zooming in on the picture and she was like, look how young Deb's mom was. Is it safe to say that during the grieving process you experienced anger? I don't know if it would be anger. No, I, it wouldn't be anger. Um, I feel, I feel grateful. But when I look at Jared and I think of everything my mom was able to share and give me and that she won't be there as he's growing up and he won't get to experience that and get that from her, um, it just, it hurts. Mm. 
that's probably when I feel like the heaviest loss. But you refuse to renege on your claims of faith in Jesus? You're go are you still a steady, faithful believer in Christ? Yes. And I would say, honestly, it was very, it was, I didn't expect this, but it was the moment that she left mm -hmm. to be with the Lord. I, it's almost like my mind went into this like movie of my life and I started to remember a lot more things that my mom taught me and she gave me and I've been able to um, be grateful for that, but also feel like, see myself and, and realize, man, I am so much like my mom. <laughs> she gave me so much. And then I think my son is going to get mm -hmm. my mom in, through me, yeah. you know, in, in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Pass the mantle. That's beautiful language. Now, I'm going to warn you because it's only fair. Yeah. I'm going to turn the corner now and I'm going to play the antagonist. Okay? Why would you put your faith in a God who allowed your mom to die so early, knowing that Jeremiah is going to miss out on all that time and those memories? Well, I see that the life that my mom lived was one of faith because of God and that who she is and the love that she was able to pour out to me and so many people was because of him and through him. And although she suffered, because she did, she never complained. Um, she never, she was grateful. She was grateful for the time that she was given and to spend with us and she made God even more real and more <sighs> tangible. And there's, I mean, if anything, I have not, it's hard to be angry or to say why God when she was like, thank you, God. And so my response is, thank you, God. Modeled after your mother, like you said. I'm yeah. grateful, yeah. So as a Christian, you believe that you'll actually see her again? Yes. Mm -hmm. That's the hope. Notice that Peter doesn't say, for the faith that saved you. He says, for the hope that lies within you. Her mother's life's testimony has given her, I would say, hope when she looks at Jeremiah because of the things that her mom poured into her, knowing that those things are a part of her DNA. She's going to be able to pour those same things into Jeremiah, knowing that his DNA is her DNA, is her DNA. This is the hope of the resurrection that not just in the future will be reunited, but that the fact that her mom could thank her in the midst of the suffering impacted her to such a great degree that she has hope now for her son who is living 
and hope in the future to be reunited once again. These are the ways that we answer the questions. These are the ways that we're prepared. Notice that Deb had to think. This is a very intense and a very new set of circumstances. And I want to thank you for letting me talk to you about that. But church, we're a family. We should be checking in with Deb and asking her how she's doing, how the process of grief is unfolding in her life, how we can be praying for her and ministering to her son, Jeremiah, in these days. And if we're not doing that, we're failing. Thank you for coming up here and for answering those questions. Give her a round of applause. Thank you, guys. What's up? There you go. She's given the body. Yeah. You guys are doing what you're supposed to do. We'll do one more. Let me see here. I'll call Josh up. I was going to bring Josh up last time, but I didn't get the chance to. And so I'll bring him up. Uh -oh. <laughs> Is your stomach all right? Huh? Your stomach all right? Oh, yeah. That's okay. Good. All right. <laughs> so, again, we're not looking for a right answer. We're not looking for Josh to speak my language or your language. We're looking to listen to his testimony. Are you the only Christian in your family? No. Um, so, my brother is a Christian. What's his name? Miles. Uh, though he's, he's a member of the Orthodox Church, so he was just given a saint name. Which Orthodoxy? Uh, Russian Orthodox. Russian Orthodox. So he was just given a, which is his middle name, Anthony. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. So Miles Anthony Maxwell. Yeah. Okay. So Josh has a family member who is a Christian, but is a Russian Orthodox Christian. Do you qualify yourself as a Protestant? Are you a non-denominational evangelical? I would are you just, just a follower of Jesus? What I kind of like to just go with follower of Jesus. I, okay, that's I, cool. Uh, you know, it's mm -hmm. hard to get. For me, you know, it's just always been hard for me to look at any of that stuff and wrap my head around the way the history of the church has evolved and changed and, and try to determine which one is right or wrong. I just kind of, you know, mm -hmm. I know that I have been spared by my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the funny thing is that the Orthodox Church looks at the Reformation and says, that's how we know we were right. <laughs> that's what they say. As a Christian, are you prepared to give a defense for the hope that lies within you when you're engaging your Orthodox brother who's going to say that the Reformation is proof that the Orthodox Church is the consistent body? Are you ready to deal with things like theosis versus justification and sanctification and glorification? Because these are our brothers and sisters, and that's why I brought you up here. Because there's probably a lack of unity between you and your brother when it comes to negotiable topics within the text now that he's Russian Orthodox, right? Yeah, there are. There mm -hmm. are. And I think, you know, I've kind of, I don't, you know, I don't speak up a 
lot when I'm with him, you know, and that's kind of been a, a piece of our relationship. But I think part of it is because he knows that he knows he rambles, and that's not just because he's unorthodox; it's because he's he 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 rambles, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, and so for me, I've grown up with it, and I just kind of, you know, I uh, I don't want to say I shut him out, but I, I just he knows that. He knows that I'm listening, and I just kind of I have my own way. Yeah. Um, but I think that I think that you know he's come a long way, and and I I also believe that the the choices are the choices are ours. You know, I feel like I feel like the one that you make, as long as you're seeking the Lord, is the one for you. You know, I don't I don't think there's um, you know as long as you're seeking the Lord, and as long as you're you're not being a person who is practicing and displaying a sinful lifestyle, mm -hmm. um, then I think that that it's the right one for you, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I really do respect his choices and I really respect, I have a lot of respect for him and I've seen what he's gone through. And mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, I, I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, he's working through those things, but he, uh, you know, he knows that he has he likes to eat pussy, mm -hmm. um, and I think he's changing a lot of that, um, probably because, you know, I think the, I don't know what you call it, the father, the priest, I don't, I don't know, but he's, that's been something they've been talking about, is Miles, we don't have to argue with everybody, you know, yeah. so, yeah. Um, and me, I'm not a very argumentative person at all, mm -hmm. <laughs> so it's just, you know, yeah. I try to approach things very peacefully and, and you know. So you, I would say that I've watched your life for probably close to, I don't know, can I say a decade now? Are we close, closing in on a decade that we've known one another? Uh, yeah. yeah, probably. About there. So I've been watching the fruit of your life for a decade, and I would say that uh, you are a good tree that produces good fruit from my observation, and I have hope that in the future resurrection, you and I will stand side by side in eternity uh, in the face of our Lord and Savior. Do you have that same hope for your brother? I do. Amen. Yeah. Despite the differences, right? Despite the differences. Despite the differences, absolutely. yeah. And yeah. when he questions you, you just engage him on the level that you can. Is that, I mean, you're not argumentative, you were saying, so you just say what you can and do what you, is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. Okay. You know, I think we, we kind of have, you know, um, gosh. I think that's pretty fair to say. I, I usually... It's, it's weird when it's with my brother, you know, because, gosh, we, we've been through so much together that it's hard to even want to wanna argue, you know, or in any way. I'm just like, dude, we're like, you know, usually when he's arguing with me, it's in this weird manner where he's talking about an argument he's had with somebody else, but I could tell he's trying to make me think about it, and I'm just <laughs> like, I don't even want to go there, man. <laughs> like, let's just drive, you know? Yep. <laughs> like, yep. 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 So... Yeah. So your brother is, well, go ahead, give him a round of applause. Yeah, yeah. 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 As you get to know Josh, you'll know that his brother is a brand new convert to Russian Orthodoxy. So he's zealous for all of the things that he's learning, and he wants everybody to know what it is that he's learning, and he wants everybody to believe what it is that he's believing. There's nothing wrong with that. We would call that his preparation process so that he can give a defense for the hope that lies within him. Now, the hope that lies within us 
It is among us. It is our collective hope. It's not our individual hope. I just want to close with that. I want us to always consider that we are a collective body. Not one part is ever more important than the other part. The hand should not say to the foot and the foot should not say to the eye. We should recognize that we all play our part in the greater body that is Jesus Christ in his bride, the church. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. So if you are unprepared to give a hope, uh, sorry, to give an answer or a defense for the hope that lies within you, for the hope that lies among us, my charge to you this morning as we prepare to close is begin to prepare now, right now. It starts with reading this. It starts with talking back and forth with one another about what it is that we're reading. And it includes a lot of time on our knees in prayer, asking God to lead and guide and change and transform and for us to submit to his ways and his word and his will. Amen. All right, let's close. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the relationships that exist within this body where there is a level of comfort and confidence to call on one another to just engage in simple dialogue that can turn the corner and become antagonistic. Father, I thank you that you are developing an answer in the hearts and the minds of the teenagers that are in this room. They are the next generation of torchbearers. I pray that we would influence them in a positive way, Lord, that would um, reassure them in their faith and not cause them to have a desire to deconstruct. I pray for the saints, Father, that have been saved for so long they can't even remember what it's like to get saved. <laughs> They've lost the fire. Help the zeal of the passion of the younger Christians to stoke the flames in the older ones. And help the wisdom that the older ones have that they may be holding on to to be pushed out and down and through the body based on their life experience. We are ultimately dependent on you, Lord, but you have also created us to be interdependent on one another. We are called to bear with one another. And so I pray, Lord, that this body would be a direct reflection of, uh, of a place, of a home and a family that creates space for people to work things out verbally without having to fear being right or wrong so that they might develop a level of comfort and confidence that will help them to function for your glory and the joy of humanity in the darkness of the world as they take your light into it. We praise you and we thank you for this morning, for the message, and we pray that it would be the beginning of an ongoing conversation in our family until... We either leave this world or you come, you come back to call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.